Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Here at The Next Reel, we've been passionately discussing movies week after week since 2011. That's a lot of movies and a lot of conversation. Sure is, Pete. And to be honest, it's a lot of work, too. But it's work that we love. If you've been enjoying our show, we'd like to remind you that there are ways to support us, even if you're not able to become a member just yet. You might have heard us talk about our new watch page, where we've listed every movie that we've talked about paired with Amazon or Apple links to rent or buy the movie. Now we'd like to introduce you to our Originals page. Let's take a trip down memory lane, Andy. Do you remember what the first film we discussed on The Next Reel was that was an adaptation? Uh, well, let's see. It wasn't, obviously, our Indiana Jones series, because those were all original. Uh, then we did Charlie Kaufman. Uh, oh, of course, it was Adaptation uh, from Susan Orlean's Orchid Thief. Exactly. We have covered quite a few adaptations over the years, and now we're providing a way for our listeners to delve into the original source material. That's right. Just head over to thenextreel.com slash originals, and you can see the list of all the adaptations that we have discussed. From our David Fincher series, featuring The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Social Network, Zodiac, Benjamin Button, and Fight Club. To our Paranoia trilogy with The Parallax View and All the President's Men. We have covered a variety of adaptations. Those were some great discussions, especially Fight Club. And let's not forget our baseball series with The Natural and Field of Dreams, adapted from Shoeless Joe. And Up in the Air and Thank You for Smoking. So many memorable conversations. Absolutely. And you know what's exciting? Each purchase you make through our links doesn't cost you any extra, but a percentage goes to support the next reel in our family of shows. You can support us while diving deeper into these fantastic stories, whether it's the paper, audiobook, or Kindle version. We've also included plays and movies. If they were the source, we've put it on there. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals, support the next reel, and get your next great read today. I'm off to reread Fight Club. Now, where did I put my Kindle? I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
in just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Are you talking um, about uh, Ultraviolet? Ultraviolet, yeah, thank you. Yeah, what um, do you think of that? What do you think of Ultraviolet? I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about it other than um, I got a movie that had Ultraviolet, and I went to try just putting it into iTunes, and I couldn't. I had to like download this whole new program. You gotta enter the if, key. You gotta enter the and key. Then, and then if well, I mean, we have to enter a key anyway. Like if I, it comes with the key inside, but I mean, um, that's the same as if you know I'm getting a digital copy from another movie that I have. But it's all through a totally different program, you know. It's this whole ultraviolet program or something that I, I, I don't yeah. Know. I don't know. I haven't run into it all that much. I mean, I, I just don't. I, you know, I, I've, I've moved so much to the cloud, to streaming, to Netflix, to Hulu Plus, to, uh, you know, iTunes that I yeah. just don't run across physical media that much anymore. Here's an interesting. Do you, you follow the uh, Louis C.K. thing? You see what he did? Um, I I heard what he did. I uh, I've never seen any of his stuff, but I did hear about Funny. that thing that that he did, you know, oh. by himself, or just you know self distributed basically, yeah. right? Yeah, he's a he's a funny dude. Funny. Yeah. Oh man! So he says, uh, you know, I want to try some. I'm, I, I, there's a lot of hassle when it comes to releasing these these things, and I, I think we can. I think we can make it hassle-free, and I think that if we put this thing together, this video, that I think if we put it together in a package where people can download it and have it, and it's cheap, they'll buy it. So uh, he did it. He produced a a uh, you know a full comedy special live at the Beacon Theater, and you go and there's just a button, and it says buy the thing. And via PayPal or Amazon, and you pay him five bucks. And what you get is you go to the download screen. This you can either stream it like four times, or you can download it three times or something like that. I mean, there's a limit of the number, just just server load stuff. And it caught you. So you pay your five bucks. You get the link to download, and you can download both the DVD and the artwork. So if you have a, like a DVD printer, you can actually print the disc art that they designed for the disc and the CD jewel case art uh, and make your own DVD. Uh, Or you can just drop it into iTunes with no restrictions, no regional restrictions, download, play it wherever you want, put it on your iPad, your iPhones, put it on anything you want, no questions asked. And in in the first 12 days, the guy made more than a million dollars. Jeez. And really uh, at, at $5 a pop. And he, he wrote this fantastic blog post uh, where he documented, he said, you know, I'm not a guy 
who wakes up in the morning with a million dollars suddenly. I'm just not that guy. So I'm going to document what we're doing with this million dollars so you know kind of where you're I don't see this as he had this really great um god man I I actually I'm gonna find it don't don't go anywhere I don't want you to go (laughs) anywhere this is this is important I really like the way he talks about um talks about this so it's been a crazy 12 days this is at uh louisck.net and you click on news been a, it's been about 12 days since the thing started, and yesterday we hit the crazy number, $1 million. It's a lot of money, really, too much money. I've never had a million dollars all of a sudden, and since we're all sharing this experience and since it's really your money, I wanted to let you know what I'm doing with it. People are paying attention to what is going on with this thing. So I guess I want to set an example of what you can do if you all of a sudden have a million dollars that people just gave to you directly because you told jokes. So I'm breaking the million into four pieces. The first 250K is going to pay back what the special cost to produce and the website to build. The second 250K is going back to my staff and the people who work for me on the special and on my show. I'm giving them a big fat bonus. The third 280K is going to a few different charities. They're all listed below. Uh, The Fistula Foundation, the Pavlov Foundation, Charity Water, Kiva, and Green Chimneys. And that leaves me with $220,000 for myself. Some of that will pay my rent and will care for my children. The rest I will do terrible, horrible things with, and none of that is any of your business. In any case, to me, $220,000 is enough out of a million. this This is the part. All of that is preamble for this part, which I really like. I never viewed money as being my money. I always saw it as the money. It is a resource. If it pools up around me, then it needs to be flushed back out into the system. So the thing is still on sale. I hope folks keep buying it. If I make another million, I'll give more away, more of it away. I'll let you know when that happens because I like you getting to know what happened to your $5 and bringing awareness to the blah, 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 blah. And he actually wrote that. Okay, I've really got to go now. Thanks again. I'll stop bugging you. I hate being in the news this much, so I'm just going to disappear for a while. Happy holidays. Wow. I I think that's, I mean, you know, okay, so people say, you know, you know well, that's Lucy Kay. He's got this huge following and people buy stuff. Well, yeah, that, that's true. And and he's worked really hard to get there. And uh, um, and I think that's that's really the story is that you work really hard and create a great product and uh, and people people will buy it. If you create yeah. great work, it doesn't matter what whether you're Louis C.K. scale or you know um, Pete Wright, Andy Nelson scale. I will admit, I I heard about it earlier this week, and um, it definitely piqued my curiosity. And like I said, I've never watched him before. He's funny. I haven't but, watched the special, but I I downloaded it, and it's sitting on my iPad. It's ready for my uh, I'm I'm leaving on a on a jet plane uh, to, uh, in like 6 hours and I'm headed to uh, to Tulsa. So this is my plane viewing. Do you know if you'll be back again? Well, I am going to Tulsa, so I guess there is question. <laughs> I may be stuck. No, that's it. You know what? It's Tulsa flying to Tulsa. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of the of the uh, uh the American frontier. You can't get there. It's it's you can't get there from here. That's what it feels like. You got to go there are flights that take you to Atlanta. To get back to Tulsa, uh, lots through Dallas, but to go to Denver, it's like go through Denver to get to Tulsa. It's like double the cost. It's already an expensive trip. I mean, it's a, wow. just a. There are some cities that American air travel has failed. Yeah, it's uh, not a hub. It's, it's not, not a hub. It's so not. And you know what's so sad about it? It used to be a hub. It was a major air hub in this country for for really bringing business west. It's unbelievable what has happened. 
Was, I got, was I got that family. in the Pan Am days? Yeah, seriously. And before, I, this is, uh, it, I, I have family. I got family who is in the business. They're very bitter right now, old and bitter ex-pilots. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to go see them, so that's what I'm doing. I'm going to go see my old family there. Your it's old, good. bitter ex-pilot family. Right. Well, it'll be fun. It will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. You know, I'm really, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, Benjamin Button. Well, before yes, we get into that, yes. should we talk about, are there any new trailers, any new exciting things that you want to talk about this week? Um, You've just been busy. you got nothing. It's been busy. I, I did manage to watch Wes Anderson's new trailer. I only just saw that that was out. I haven't even seen it. Uh, I saw it. You know, I'll be honest. I'm, I've been less and less a fan of his, uh, the more movies he makes. <laughs> Which was what? What was the movie that that turned you south on him? Oh, it was um, I, I the first his first movie was like a first movie. I I kind of always forget about that one. I don't even remember what it's called. Um, but Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums I thought were just amazing, yeah. and pretty much everything after that I haven't liked. The uh, I mean, I Zizou even, Steve Zizou. I I really just. I really didn't like that movie. That one, that movie actually hurt my feelings. <laughs> because it's one, you know, those movies that you feel like personally affronted because you have such, you feel like you have such a personal relationship with all the actors in the movie. That, right. That there was this, there was this script and this package that put these actors in a position that would make me not like them very much. Yeah, exactly. I hate, and, and even, uh, to me, even worse was uh, Mr. Fox. You know, we took our daughter to that. I was like, oh, this could be fun. Not fun for children. No, it, she thought it was a snoozer. Like, she was so bored, she was, like, roaming the aisles of the movie theater. <laughs> my wife and I were just nothing like... Nothing worse. Oh, I know. And my wife and I were just like, you know, we were just trying to hold our eyelids open. We were so bored. I don't know why that got the acclaim it got. But, you know, he's got his followers, and that's great. Um, I didn't even bother seeing the um, Darjeeling Limited. I, I haven't seen it either. He lost me on those. Yeah, on those I, I kind of gave up. And so, you know, I mean, the new one, Moonrise Kingdom, it looks um, a little more back to form. You know, it's kind of kids and all that. But at the same time, I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to find his films a little, like, too clever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which sounds weird. I also saw... Young Adult, the um, Diablo Cody written, Jason Reitman directed, Charlize Theron and Patton Oswalt starring. Acted. <laughs> acted, performed film, um, which I also didn't like. <laughs> I, I've, I am, uh, you know, a lot of people really love Diablo Cody. I love Jason Reitman's films, except when he works with her. <laughs> I... I, well, I will say about Juno, um, fantastic story. I like the story itself, but the characters really just kind of drove me nuts. I just like, you know, it just is, it just all sounded so hokey. I just had a hard time buying into any of them. Um, and this film I saw with a buddy and afterward, he's just like, you know, I had the complete opposite reaction to this than you did to... Um, Juno, I felt the um, characters were interesting and the story was lacking, and I would agree with him. Uh, Charlize Theron is a terrible, awful, evil character, 
but she's great. It's a fantastic character. And Patton Oswalt deserves, I mean, if he got a Best Supporting Actor nomination for that, he would be completely deserving of it. He was just fantastic in the role. Uh, but the film was just, oh, it was a snoozer. I, I did fall asleep, actually, for a part of it. So, Wow. I just, I really didn't like it. So, uh, Did you see, uh, I, uh, speaking of the Diablo Cody catalog, so Juno, I, I, uh, I wasn't crazy about it. Um, which, which sort of bugs me because I'm usually pretty crazy about the Academy Award winning scripts. Um, yeah. And I, I love good dialogue. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do too, but the, just the overall sort of package of the movie, it just made me kind of, I just didn't like it. But then to follow up with like Jennifer's body. Yeah. I, what I happened? That what happened to that? I don't know. I skipped that one. And you know, what bothered me even more is that, uh, and this is just, I, I don't know if this is, you know, me being bitter or if this is just irritation about anything Diablo Cody wrote, but she was writing a, um, a guest, you know, uh, column in entertainment weekly periodically after all of that. And it was awful. It, they were all awful columns. And I was just like, and I wrote entertainment weekly several times telling them what a mistake they had made by having her, but they never printed <laughs> any of my letters, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I termed it Diablo Codyitis, and everybody seemed to be uh, infected with it except for me, and I, I don't know. That's really funny. It's terrible. I mean, you know, she, there's plenty of people who love her. I shouldn't, I shouldn't bash her so much, but I, you know, she's just not for me. Well, you've made that clear. <laughs> uh, I, I, if you have you seen Contagion? Not yet. No. I am I am the I am the Matt Damon um to Diablo Codyitis. I'm like one of the rare people who's completely immune to the disease. <laughs> but everyone else in the world is getting it. <laughs> I cannot wait to see that movie actually. A great I movie. I watched really the trailer with my uh, with my kids just this weekend. Oh, there's just, a cheery one for It the wasn't kill. it wasn't smart. Uh, it wasn't a smart thing to do. I I'll tell you just as an aside that you know my kids and I we we have we, we try to find series shows that are just fun that because we don't watch a lot of tv like we don't watch tv in our house really we don't have cable you know and so the kids like we when we, we usually we find a show that's been on for a long time and we sit and my kids are you know five and nine and so uh we find a show and we just invest in that show and we watch the whole storyline the whole story arc and the first time we, we started this with uh wizards of waverly place you know because that was their kind of their age you uh, lucky guy. It was, you know what you uh, you get you go numb you go numb. Yeah, that's after true. After a while, and and I'll tell you what I'll tell you what's what I get a big kick out of is the guest appearances that they get on that show. Yeah, they get like big named actors to do stupid stuff. I mean, I guess it's like Sesame Street, you know. Yeah, and it's you know like um, uh, Yo Gabba Gabba. Yeah, that's, right. You know, that's I watched right. that plenty of times with my daughter when she right. was younger. Well, and, so yeah. It's the same. It's exactly the same thing. And so I, uh, you know, right now this my my wife is in. Uh, she's been traveling this week, and so it's been me and the kids. And we decided to kick off uh, Smallville season one. Mm. Did you ever? Did you ever get into the Smallville? You into the Superman? No, lore? I, I I like the idea of it. Yeah. Um, it just seemed too much for me to 
It, it, there's it no doubt. Too it is too much. It is too yeah. much. But it is, uh, and it's. it really is, there are parts of it that I just have to, you can tell it was written for like that 15-year-old audience, and my daughter is still a bit young, and my son just doesn't get it. He wonders yeah, right. why, why, why Superman can run so fast when he doesn't have his cape on. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But it, you know, it like takes it takes you back to to a place in you know what was going on ten years ago, and and uh, sure, the show is over now, and so there is a defined end. Uh, you know, I'm sure it's two hundred and twenty some odd hours later, but anyway, so there's some stuff in there that that is uh, that I made some just horrible judgment calls uh, letting my my kids see, and you do that. I yeah, tell me you've done that where you've you've let your kids see things that you know you just shouldn't. Oh, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely, um, I'm trying to think of something. uh, Well, yeah, like I talked about here on the show, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. You know, it's got some great, fun, old-timey songs to sing, but then all of a sudden there's like KKK. Exactly. (laughs) It's like, oh, let's look at something else. We we tried uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm I, I am a I'll tell you bigger than small. I was a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I thought that show was so clever, and uh, at really from the very beginning, I was a big fan of um, Joss Whedon, uh, and so yeah, and and like you said, great dialogue, you know, and so it's it's packaged in this weird kind of you know meme that sort of created itself. But I I really loved the the dialogue, and so we I turned on episode one, season one. S one E one, and I'm watching it with my daughter, and it's these two kids. They break into the school. These these high school kids, and there's this you know the cute girl, and she's in her little schoolgirl outfit, and this little cute blonde, and she's she's so you know like, oh I'm so scared. I hear noises, and the guy's like, do you really hear noises? And they, oh yeah, I hear noises. Are you sure you hear noises? And and my daughter's like, oh my god, he's a vampire. He's a vampire. Is she gonna slay him? She better slay him. And, and she says, I, do, are you sure you don't hear noises? I don't hear noises. And then the, the blonde schoolgirl turns around and her face is this horrific face of a vampire. And then she proceeds to eat the boy's face. Of course. And it happens so fast before you can even make a, a move. <laughs> and my daughter's like, she just throws her body onto my head and shoulders. like a, It was like, the, like, like an old Tom and Jerry where, you know, the cat just jumps on somebody's head and just sits there and... and, and uh, I realized that I had I had caused a a little I don't know what's a little grandma seizure <laughs> in my <laughs> poor daughter who will be scarred scarred for life. Yeah, do you, I remember yeah. my dad did that to me? Did I ever told this story? My dad did that to me with The Shining. Oh wow, there's a there's a brutal one. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't The Shining. Not The Shining. It was Salem's Lot. Salem's Lot. It oh was yeah, the, that's uh, scary yeah, it was too. Mr. Blue. Uh, I remember. I will never forget that. He ruined me. For years with Mr. Blue. And with the kid I, against the window, the tap. Oh, my God. When he, let me in. Let yeah. me in. Oh, my God. That was terrible. That was scary. I was, um, I, I was on a road trip or something with my dad. And, and um, he would, you know, watch late night um, movies while we were sleeping. And I remember he thought I was sleeping. And he was watching John Carpenter's The Thing. And he didn't know I was awake, and I probably should not have been watching that movie at the time. And oh. I was, I was terrified. I mean, just like you know, watching when the doctor is trying to, you know, revive the guy, and he goes and pushes his hands down, and the guy's chest opens up like a big mouth, and like eats his arms off. Oh, and everything. that's horrible! That's horrible. 
Oh, I doubt I slept that night. I highly doubt it. Oh no, you're a t- you're a vegetable. Yeah, and you, it's that that sense of fear that you, where you just can't move, but you know someone's in the room with you, right? And you can't move. That's horrible. Ah, oh, man, I'm glad I'm a grown up. <laughs> Childhood was hard with the scary movies. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Uh, let's let's talk about this movie. Yeah, let's talk about uh, this. This is the movie that is uh, that uh, gave us the, uh, I guess, the idea for, for our... the the. Uh, it, it's the. I don't know. There's something about this that we have to work the word eponymous in. It's the the eponymous David Fincher movie, uh, Benjamin Button movie review. Yeah, Fincher uh, Fest. Fincher Fincher Fest. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. It's good, Benjamin Button. This was a good movie. So, uh, curious case of Benjamin Button. This was. Um, see, we're doing this in in review in reverse order. So, what number film is this chronologically? This was his fifth. No, sixth this major this film? is his um, seventh. This was his seventh major. Film. Yeah, because Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is his ninth. His ninth. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so it was yeah, based it, on uh, on a short story. By mm-hmm. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Did you read the story? Have you read the story? Do you ever have to come across a story? I never have. Um, I do remember reading um, something about it, talking about how it was uh, kind of a uh, very different story to this. You know, it was much more a. Um, I was. Trying I, to I think. think of the well, word. I think when he's born, he actually is like a big adult right yeah, like a big yeah. old man yes he is a 70 year old man and yeah and size and all not able like to baby size exactly little, little man, right? no able to speak he is a um yeah he is um right uh and he goes to school as a five-year-old he goes to kindergarten but he is a full-grown 70 year well at least that's the interpretation that i sort of walked out with or walked out when i read when i read the short story in the theater uh, that I walk away. My memory is that he was a full-grown person. The you know the in general, I don't think it's sort of hard to compare the short story to the Fincher film. I, I've been trying to think of the word that that sort of describes to me the genesis of the Fincher film from the movie. It's not treatment, you know that that the short story wouldn't necessarily serve as a treatment. Um, for the film but it is it is a short story and what remains true of the short story is the the reverse aging mm-hmm. benjamin button's name um and the the title really i mean I, otherwise it's a you know the the old man born reverse aging everything else was was pretty much uh is, is there a daisy is there a daisy no not that i remember um Gosh, I you know I I don't believe there was it, it was most of the story or much of the story is um, focuses on this this sort of collegiate retribution when he goes to school as you know an old man looking like an eighteen year old uh, and plays football uh, he goes to Harvard and gets revenge against Yale uh, for another uh, a bit of 
disquiet in the story. And uh, and then he, you know, as he gets old during his college experience, he, he gets older and is and and more feeble and uh, and is and can't handle the load. So he moves in. Um, uh, he he ends up he, he does have a, a wife who leaves him. She moves abroad. Um, gosh, yeah, it ends up with him. What I what I like about the way the, the the short story ends, I think, which I think Fincher captures well, is that uh, is there's this moment where everything uh, fades to darkness, mm-hmm. and and you don't you, you don't I mean you really I. I and uh, you, you get the sense that 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 Fitzgerald was really looking to to you know illustrate the parallels uh, between youth and old age and and it, but it wasn't so much and I guess this is the, I'll I'll stop you know my meandering about the short story I the the Fitzgerald book was much or story was much less about um, death right right where I think Fincher put a lot more emphasis on this idea of death in the context of how we live. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, there's a lot of death in this. I mean, everybody dies in this movie. It is. It's, it's a, a very interesting story about kind of in a lot of large sense, a lot of the realities of, um, you know, life, you know, is, you know, we're born to die. Right. You know, and uh, it's it's an interesting tale that that Eric Roth wrote. Um, yeah, it's almost like um, the short story just served. At, and I don't know from Eric Roth's perspective how he viewed it, but it almost was like a served as just kind of a um, you know just a nice a, a, almost as the idea you know almost as a a, a theme and a feeling that you have about a story and then he kind of created a whole new tale about it. Right. I I want to get your perspective on Roth before we jump too much further in. Uh, Eric Roth uh has a uh wonderful uh CV. Uh best Oc- Oscar for uh, Forrest Gump. Um co-wrote The Insider, which was another terrific film. Yeah, uh, wrote Munich for Steven Spielberg. Uh, Fantastic. And then Benjamin Button. All of those were nominated for Oscars. Of, of course, he won for um, for Forrest Gump. Yeah. Uh, he is he he's a fantastic screenwriter. Um, I'm curious your take. I know you're a big fan of Forrest Gump. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, what? How? How would you compare these two movies? Well, yeah, and that's that's one of those questions that inevitably is going to come up when you're when you're looking at Eric Roth and his, you know, his these particular two stories because there are so many similarities. But, you know, they're they're very different films at the same time. Um, you know, Forrest Gump is is a a, a wonderful story about a guy who you know, is kind of going through life much the way Benjamin Button is. He's, you know, learning from a wide variety of people all through his life, different things about life, much like Benjamin Button. 
and um, you know has a love of his life that um, is kind of in and out of his life. They don't actually end up coming together until later in the story, much like Benjamin Button. Um, they end up having a kid, which you know puts a little panic in in uh, Forrest Gump because he's afraid it's going to kind of be like him, much like Benjamin Button. Um, there is the the feather, the idea of you know, we're just kind of this feather floating through life. Well, in that one, I guess it's it's the comparison between the feather and the box of chocolates. You know, it's it's fate, but it's also, you know, it's you never know what you're going to get. That soul, whole mix. Um, in this one, you have the hummingbird, which is uh, um, more representative of, you know, kind of the uh, the infinite connection people have with each other and everything. It's it, There's a lot of comparisons. Um, I don't know if that was intentional on his part to bring those comparisons into the story. You know, I don't know if it even matters because the stories feel so drastically different, even with those comparisons. Well, I, uh, you know, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. I, I think for me, where the comparisons, I, when you look at, you know, the writer's progression, and you compare Forrest Gump in 1994, um, you know, to Benjamin Button in 2008, uh, it seems to me that what we have in Benjamin Button is a Forrest Gump character written with intention. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a, it's a, the way this character is written to look at life, much less, it's much less about a character that is tripping through life and stumbling into wonderful experiences, but True. is is making mature choices about his place in life, and he has been given this context, this certain context, and that's his that's his dramatic struggle. And for Benjamin Button, it is this case of reverse aging, uh, and I, I think it, you get this sense that he's much more sort of. Um, in the in his place in in this path in life and and it feels to me like Roth was uh, that that Benjamin Button is the story Roth writes as a grown-up writer yeah you know but uh, but the reason i bring that up is because i also think for me that this film um for does the same very much the same thing for David Fincher uh now again we're doing this in reverse order but um, leading up to this point, David Fincher had a, a certain kind of movie that he worked on, and uh, Benjamin Button changed for for his sort of the movies that he he took on. I mean, Benjamin Button was a very different movie than Zodiac and Panic Room and Fight Club, and and prior. True, I I think the change came more um, stylistically. Um starting with Panic Room. Um, if you look at the four films before Panic Room, they're a much, you know, um, edgier style, I guess you could say. They were, they were, you could, you could feel the sort of straining at the seams of the music video. To an extent. I mean, I, I but yeah, I, yeah, I think Especially you're right. Alien 3 was a glorified music video. Come on. 
Mm, I, you know, I think Fight Club has probably a lot more of that. But I it's also the style yeah. of the film. It's yeah, also it is. the style of the but film. But that's what I mean. There's this sort of set. And I, I'll agree with you. The Fight Club panic room difference. I mean, I, you know, and I don't know. I, I will talk more about Panic Room. I don't remember what the critical acclaim was of Panic Room. Uh, I, I, for, to me, it's one of my favorites. Zodiac was a work of art. Yeah. But but had a very it left me with a very different feeling it's a it's about a horrifying event um but benjamin button is a fantasy like it is a it is a, a sort of it's a fantasy that seems to me designed to appeal to a much wider much more mature audience and that was something that fincher hadn't done yeah right it was it was a very uh it was a departure it was a a dramatic story it didn't have serial killers in it it was um you know just kind of a very straightforward drama with a very peculiar twist to it a man who is aging backwards um and it's got this this um you know just heartbreaking love story at the center of it and it was i mean if you look at um even everything he's done since actually doesn't even you know, have the same sort of feel as this one does. It really don't. It's it's. This was the first story to me that is a story about love, right? And 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 the rest were stories that were very much about fear, yeah, and rage. And this was a story about, you know, living with intention, in and embracing, the the love that is present around, you, even as everybody around you is aging and dying. Mm-hmm. I think that's a that is a powerful difference in this movie, and that's one one of the things that makes this movie stand out to me. Apart from it being, as we talked about last week, a decidedly Fincher film, right? And you know, Fincher even on uh, the uh, commentary on this film, he talks about that to a little uh, a certain extent um, regarding the hummingbird and how people were comparing that to the feather. Um, and his reaction is, you know, the the hummingbird is an organic being. It's a living, breathing thing that moves on its own, makes its own decisions. The feather just kind of blows in the wind. It's its own, um, it just kind of floats along and, and goes where it's taken. Whereas the hummingbird um, is a being that makes its own decisions. So, I mean, that right there, I think, is is exactly what you're saying about this film and how in Forrest Gump, he just kind of went along wherever things went and kind of fell into things and had a lot of really interesting stories to tell from it and learned a lot. This one, it's a lot more um, Benjamin making decisions, doing things, Daisy making decisions, doing things, how their lives interweave. But it's all choices, very um, uh, definite, definite definite choices that they're making. I, I like that you brought up Daisy, and I think that's a... You know, in in many ways, it makes their relationship so much mature, more mature too, that uh, it it's complicated because of the the choices they are making. They are not able to be together mm-hmm. uh, in substantive ways, in really what amounts to the prime of both of their lives at the same time. And yeah. that's that's part of you know, as you said, that that's really just heartbreaking, in in no small part because it feels so real. To, yeah, you know, I mean, how, who hasn't experienced that? Well, that's one of the strengths of this film, um, and I, I think you know the credit is given to Eric Roth and to Fincher. The fact that 
the relationships feel so much more real. People make tough real world decisions. You know, decisions to leave, decisions to stay, decisions to um, let somebody, you know, do something that, that might be hurtful or, you know, and not react in a certain way. Like the scene when, when Benjamin, you know, after he's feeling uh, really guilty about having a child and he just doesn't want to burden Daisy and his daughter uh, Caroline as she grows bigger and he continues growing older when he sneaks out in the middle of the night and Daisy wakes up and looks at him and he kind of looks at her and they have that exchange of just looks and then he still leaves. It's, it's, it's really, uh, it's very painful. And, you know, at that moment you could kind of almost side with him or her, you know, it's like, you know, you, you really are not happy with him that he's leaving, but at the same time, you're not happy with her either for really not saying anything, you know, but it's, I mean, that's, that's reality. But you know, that was well, exactly. And that was, that's what I was going to say that this is in that moment, like you as the, as the viewer are, are pained because you, you can't side with either of them because you know, it's the right decision. Like yeah. you, you, you know, it, it's painful for both of them to a point that just rips you out of your skin. And, but you know, it's also the only way they could move forward. Right. Right. No, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so we, we have to talk a little bit about the, um, about the effects of this movie, but I want to, uh, I feel like we can't talk about effects unless we talk about who was originally, you know, back in the mid eighties. Uh, going to be, you know, uh, helming this film and starring in it. Uh, originally, uh, in the mid-1980s, it was uh, supposed to be Frank Oz with Benjamin Button played by Martin Short. Yeah. Now, there's there's a movie that I'm really glad never got made. <laughs> yeah, like, glad, like, I'm so glad I didn't have to see that traffic accident. Mm-hmm. Like I really, but at the same time, I'm really curious. Like I, I, I have a feeling what we would have is we would, we would still have, <laughs> I think we would already have a remake of Benjamin Button by David Fincher. <laughs> yes. This, this would have been the same film. Exactly. We would also <laughs> <And> people... <laughs> have a Muppet version. Yes. Uh, yes. They would be interpreting uh, the original story a very in a much literal, different direction. Yes, <laughs> much more. Uh, yes, I can see the uh, the delivery scene right now. Total. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No. Um, and so it, it it went through many hands. Um, uh, it was also optioned by Steven Spielberg with Tom Cruise to play Benjamin Button. Let's see what else. Um, uh, at one point. This is an interesting uh, tie-in for for us in the scope of the universe of, of right, specs right. that don't matter. Uh, Spike, uh-huh. Spike Jones and Car- Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, which I found very interesting that uh, that the two of them had been attached to this at one point, and that Charlie had actually written a draft of it at one point. Did you wonder at all if Charlie Kaufman had a, a brother named Benjamin Button in this movie? <laughs> it's the story of Benjamin and Charlie Button. <laughs> and Charlie Button. <laughs> uh, it would have been, uh, and and yet, uh, you know, as is often the benefit of hindsight, I can't imagine this movie not in Fincher's uh, now signature style. 
and tone. Yeah, it's it's he brings so much to it. There's a there's a real melancholy. There's this um, sense of grounding in it, like we were just talking about. It 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 all feels so genuine. Something else as I was watching this film, and then I, I listened to the commentary. Um, Fincher uh, really. Um, because I mean, we never haven't we haven't really talked about his beginnings, but I mean, he began working in special effects back in like Return of the Jedi. He um, grew up, I guess, a couple doors down from George Lucas, and and uh, you know befriended him and started working in uh, effects on his films, and kind of worked that way up until he got to the music videos. So he's very very in tune with the world of effects. Um, as far as the um, all of the amazing makeup effects that they do in this uh, digitally and uh, and real, he is one of the directors who really knows how to um, put the effects into scenes without feeling like he has to emphasize the effects, and I think that's what sells it so well. I, I'm I'm glad you said that. This I find this so interesting. This movie was nominated for 13 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, Screenplay, Editing, Cinematography, Costume Design, Score, Mixing, and Mixing. And it didn't win for any of those, but it won for Art Direction, Makeup, and Visual Effects. Right. What I kept thinking about this week, knowing that we were going to be doing this, is I think it was there, there's a combination of quotes that always gets tied up in my head between um, James Cameron or, or, or talking about James Cameron and his work and George Lucas. Uh, the first is that, uh, you know, George Lucas, if, if there's any director out there who could uh, or who would choose to make a movie without any actors at all, it would be George Lucas. Uh, mm-hmm. And do everything with with CG and voice, but James Cameron, I think, uh, during Titanic, said that we're finally to the point where we're cresting the wave, where uh, the technology is allowing us to make the movies that we see in our heads. Yeah, and and I think I think it you know even in Titanic, I I don't think it capitalized on sort of the the real scope of what that quote means. But Benjamin Button is a poster child for that. I mean, it's, it is perfect. Well, I mean, you watch the commentary. Can you want to talk about sort of the, the scope of, of what they did, uh, between makeup and digital effects in this movie? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing what they did. I mean, Brad Pitt isn't playing, um, physically on set as Benjamin Button until, um, I can't remember how far it is into the film, probably 45 minutes into the film when he's working on the tugboat with Captain Mike. And it's when he's, you know, it's right when he's they're um, working around uh, Russia, uh, Minsk or wherever it is they are. Um, that's the first time he's in it as himself. And all the way up until that point, it's it's in a sense Lord of the Rings actually also kind of helped pave the way for this. Yeah. Um, it's they have different people of different ages and sizes playing him. To be up specific, that point. six. There are six other Benjamin Button besides Brad Pitt. Yeah, and they did an amazing um, job with this technology of 
of facial replacement, which they also did in Social Network, which we already talked about when they created the um, second Winklevoss. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, this, this, they literally like had Brad Pitt, they put little dots all over his face and they had him acting and they did all these, you know, motion tracking and everything. And they basically digitally created his face and they digitally created it at all those different ages. So through the whole, you know, first portion of the film, 45 minutes or so, yeah, it's him at all these different, um, uh, just doing all this amazing technical acting where he's not even on set. He's, for all intents and purposes, acting in a little tiny room and they're just, they're basically copying his face and then putting it in there. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's uh, mind-boggling what they do. And not just him, but Daisy as well. When she's... Did they, did they do the facial replacement for Daisy or was that just makeup, practical makeup? When she's old, I mean, she's, she's regular person size. Yeah. I guess the reason they were doing that with Brad, the whole first portion of the movie, is because his body was so small and his... And they needed his, his face. Yeah. But with, with uh, Kate Blanchett, what they did when she was playing a young Kate Blanchett early in the film, um, once, once they had her, which she was the third Daisy, I believe, um... They initially started, they have this, this technique that these people invented for this film called euthanizing. That's a terrible name. nice. It's, it's a terrible That's name. That's horrible. But they basically take the actor and they make them younger. You know, they give them a little, like for her, they would give her a little more baby fat in her cheeks. They would remove some shadows, paint over the wrinkles, all that sort of stuff. And they would basically create younger versions. It's the same thing they did with Brad. Um, the last time we see him in the film as Brad, um, when he stops in to visit Daisy and he's only like in his twenties. Yeah. He looks Be before, brilliantly right before, younger. I mean, it's, it's uh, creepy. It's yeah, creepy. It's, yeah. You feel like he just walked off the set of Thelma and Louise. That, I was, that's what I was looking for. Thelma and Louise. Yeah. That's right. And they did it. I mean, it was perfect. Yeah. It's, it's pretty stunning. The, and then in between all of that, you know, from the time he's on the tugboat all the way until he's himself before they start um, younging him up. they um, It's just all um, practical makeup effects, you mm -hmm. know, prosthetics and everything that uh, that they put on him. And But, but to your point, though, I mean, the practical effects are almost as, as stunning as the CG effects because they are so, you know, they're, they're just immaculate. Oh, they are. It's just, it's wonderful. Who you know, was the, this... the guy who did the makeup was somebody with a legacy of doing incredible stuff like this. I can't remember his name. Uh, Greg Canham. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is, uh, yeah. He did this. Um, and actually he did age makeup with Brad Pitt on, uh, in Babel as well. Yeah. Um, just a little bit for him there. But yeah, I mean, he's worked with, um, Martin Lawrence on like the Big Mama's all oh, the Big so, Mama's movies. So yeah, right. like those sorts of things. Um, you know, he did The Exorcism of Emily Rose, The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, Beautiful Mind. Yeah, Van Helsing. Um, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean, where he did some of the special makeup effects. You know, I mean, going back to even The Insider with Russell Crowe, who you know had to be um, heavier and with a lot of more liver spots and everything. A lot of work on with him on there. I mean, he's been doing this for years, um, all the way back into the 70s. 
Well, I mean, so. you know, he did uh, Kevin Sorbo's makeup in Cull the Conqueror. <laughs> I mean, you know, you remember that. Oh, who who could forget? Who could forget Kevin Sorbo in yeah, Cull he, the Conqueror? He actually won an Academy Award also for Bram Stoker's Dracula in the... Yes. Uh, that was, you know what, actually, that was, really, that's, that's the one the, I was thinking of. Yeah, that's the stunner. Well, that's and he the, did your I favorite, uh, Bicentennial Man. Oh, He did yes. the age makeup in Bicentennial Man, which which was uh, another one that had, a, you know, I say that, <laughs> you don't know if I'm being serious here. I actually am on the record of saying I like this movie, and the makeup was great. And that's the one we talked about, or I think we talked about. That you hadn't show. seen. Well, I haven't seen it, and that Chad was in it. And Chad was in it, exactly. Yeah. We should have said that. We should have made that connection. We should Instead have. of that horrible Spider-Man connection where you can't see him. Uh, yes, yes. Yes, I, I sleep with my copy of, uh, unopened copy of Bicentennial Man <laughs> under, my, under my pillow every night. <laughs> you know, he did the mask, too. He made the mask yeah. for the mask? <laughs> yeah. Greg Canham. There's a, you know, he should go on our list of uh, best friends that don't know us. He seems like he'd be a nice guy. I want him to do my Halloween costume every year. Oh, man. You know, we need better friends in that regard. Yeah, I know. We need like, real, like, Hollywood makeup artist friends. Man. Okay. Uh, so we've been uh, rapping about this movie for a long time. What else did we want to talk about on this thing? Um, that You know, well, we got to do, we got to run the numbers. Do you have the numbers on your fancy uh, Insiders uh, backroom website? Well, the movie costs 160 uh million to make um and you know budgets you know grew larger and larger so it was um produced by uh two studios rather than one and that's how studios found a way to make these larger budget films um yeah so it uh it made domestically uh, about 127.5 million internationally about 202.3 million so worldwide 300 almost 330 million worldwide and then about 43.5 million uh domestically for DVDs so you know it made its money back cuz they probably you know i think nowadays they say for big films like this you take the production budget and you know, double it, and that's your marketing budget. So that's thirty three hundred twenty million. If it made three hundred thirty million plus DVD sales, you know, it made its money back. Not a ton, but it still made its money back. Okay, well then, I, I just need to. I feel like I need to say this out loud. Uh, so it, this movie cost one hundred fifty million dollars to make. His next film, uh, the budget was forty million. Uh, it was the Social Network and the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. 90 million. Yeah, so there's obviously been um, some changes to his uh, budget sizes. I mean, but this was a, you know, I think they designed this film. I, I shouldn't say they designed this film. What probably happened, my thinking, is they said, you know, the only way we can do this film is if two studios do it because it's going to cost so much to do it right. And we really have to, this is me talking as a studio head, we really have to do what we can to work this into the awards season um, so that that's going to really help carry it and help us get that money back. Right, And they made their money back. I mean, that's yeah, great. Yeah. But this exactly. was, this was, and, and I, I haven't looked up, but the panic room budget was 48 and Zodiac was 65. And so 
this is Fincher going from uh, 65 to $150 million. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a, a man. That takes uh, that's a lot of pressure. I can't it's, it's, I can't imagine yeah. uh, working on a film uh, with with that kind of scope, coming from from these more uh, you know I don't know this is a uh, f- from comparably uh, intimate films. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's frightening how large the budget is uh, how, for this. How will this film be uh, in that context? How how do you think this film will be remembered? Beyond people like us who are aficionados, you know, I hope this film is remembered. I think it's it's a it's a an amazingly beautiful film. I think, in a large sense, this film will be remembered for its makeup and for the makeup, the digital makeup effects they they did in it. Um, I think people will come back to this film as a key moment when that corner was turned, and and you could really have a full performance digitally by an actor in a film, you know? Right. Um, I think that corner was kind of turned with this film. And and we're talking like a real human in a dramatic story, not Gollum or, well, exactly. or, or an mean, avatar, you know? When, when this movie can conquer kind of the uncanny valley in, in a really believable way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're, I think you're right. And I think I think it was a man like David Fincher who needed to be um, shepherding that through because because of his attention to detail uh, and because he has a technical mind and understands like I was saying he understands how to use those tools when he's telling a story and because of that I think that's what really made this film work. Uh, it was shot. In uh, Louisiana, yeah, New yeah, Orleans. Shot in New Orleans. Shot. Um, they started filming in 2006, um, and then uh, they filmed a long time. I remember on the commentary he's talking about how he shot the scenes with um, the um, the uh, church scene toward the beginning when the preacher lays his hands on on Mama and on uh, on Benjamin. They shot that in November in New Orleans, and it was freezing, and everyone had to act like they were sweating. And the following summer in June, they were filming, uh, they were still filming in L.A., and they were filming um, the Paris hospital scene in a place there. And the the man who was acting as the preacher walked onto the set, and uh, he had been done forever and he came in and went up to David he's like man you guys are still filming this I've shot five <laughs> movies since I left you uh, that's so, funny I mean it was a it was a big film to undertake there's a lot of stuff going on in this film big film it was interesting I'm, I so the film opens and closes around the great storm uh, which I, I, you know, I around the great. St- well, it's it's actually I think what's interesting uh, here. You finish what you're saying, and then I'll I'll. Well, and uh, yeah, because I don't I don't uh, having I don't have the benefit of the commentary. So if you know something, then you know interrupt me. But my my sense is, um, you know, I I get the feeling that he and, and I feel like I I read in research that he chose New Orleans in large part because of the breaks that he got 
to film there to bring the production there and spend the kind of money he did during the recovery from Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And that the film was set then um, in the, the opening, sort of the, the real-time scenes were actually set sort of as an homage to, uh, to Katrina since it was in New Orleans. That that was the storm we are to assume that that it was that it was Katrina that they're they're bracing themselves for. Well, they mentioned it in the film that it's Katrina. Did you I, see the you, they you did? see the news? You you look at the TV a few times when you're in the hospital. Oh, see, clearly, I wasn't you watching. See the, you see the Katrina. Well, yeah, that's because you watch everything on those little tiny screens. No, you are, <laughs> oh, man. You're you're like a what is the word for you? Some sort of a technology snot. technology bigot. I'm a snot. I think you are. A little yep. bit. I am. I'm a clinger. I cling to the old methods. <laughs> Did you watch this movie on Laserdisc? Ah. <laughs> Is that good? Is that, that good because it's true? Go. There you go. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so what yeah, were you yeah. going to say then about now Since I missed a key plot point. It's No, no, you didn't. But, uh, well, you did miss the Katrina thing. But um, it's actually two framing devices, which I think is interesting, um, that end up tying together nicely. It's the framing device of Daisy on her deathbed with her daughter um, in the hospital during Katrina. And then it's also the framing device of, um, uh, what's his name, Mr. Gatto, the clockmaker, who makes the clock that ticks backward, which is a really interesting completely unrelated to the story, a very interesting framing device that also just kind of, I think, sets kind of a, the tone for the film, you know, uh, what he says about, you know, making this clock that ticks backward and how maybe it can help, you know, bring back his son from the war and things like that. I mean, it's a really beautiful little uh, story that he tells there in the train station. And then this clock ends up coming back at the end and it's the very last image of the film as you see the clock now in storage still ticking backward and the flood coming in to uh, to flood the room. So it was just such an elegant uh, close to this fantasy. Yeah. Uh, really a beautiful story. And, and it's one, you know, it took me, I didn't see this in the theater. It took me a long time to see this movie. Uh, and I don't, I don't know why. And that's sort of why I asked the question, what, you know, how do you think this movie will be remembered? It was hard for me to get into. Um, get, I felt like, oh, I'm going to need to be in a mood to go see this movie. You know, it's not, it's, e- it's not an easy movie. It's not an easy movie. I mean, it's easier than some, but it is a slow paced film. It's not it's two hours and forty minutes or something. Two hours yeah, two like two forty five something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a serious it's long. film. It's it is, it, but uh, epic and, and a an lot epic. of a lot of critics. It it got a lot of flack when it came out from the critics about its length, and a lot of critics um, brought that up that it was it was a tedious film. It dragged on. It was too slow. You know, and I. You know, everybody has their own perspective of things and, you know, what they say about opinions. But I, I, I would say that those people maybe didn't appreciate the, the tone of the film. It had, it had its own tone, which, which lent its own pace. I happen to like it. 
Oh, I love it. That's it's definitely on the list, and uh, it's another terrific, terrific Fincher film. Yes. Uh, do you have anything you 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 just can't close without saying? Uh, I I think we covered it. I um, fantastic performances all around. Um, gorgeous Tilda Sw- film. Tilda Swinton. Yeah, I mean you can't go wrong with Tilda Swinton. Actually, that's a funny story from the commentary. Um, David Fincher had somebody else in mind for that role, and um, really wanted to cast that person. and And Brad kept saying, "You know, I feel like there's there's somebody better. There's somebody better out there." And David told Brad, he's like, okay, if you think there's somebody who's, who's better than this person that I'm wanting to go with, it should be an easy one to come up with. So I'm going to go back to my office. I'm going to sit down and, I, and you have five minutes. If you don't call me in five minutes, I'm picking up the phone. and I'm going to call this other actress and book her for the role. And he went and sat in his office and three and a half minutes later, Brad Pitt called and said, Tilda Swinton. And David said... <laughs> You're right. That is better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, but it was interesting because uh, Fincher was talking about the nature of collaboration. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, he is a, a filmmaker who, who gets um, uh, director's cut of his projects, at, in, at least in the last, you know, four films or so. He gets to do what he wants. Um, but he talks about that and he says, you know, it's not about director's cut. Director's cut just means that... You're talking about um, what's uh, also called final cut? Yeah, final cut. Like yeah. he's the one who makes the last decision as to what the film is going to be when it's yeah. presented to an audience. And he says, it's not that I just get to do whatever I want. What it means is I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people and we work together and end up, you know, trying to find the best solutions to answer everybody's concerns and questions and make the best film possible because we're all trying to make the best film possible. What director's cut or final cut means is I'm the one who gets to end the discussion. Right. And I thought that was a great way of saying it, you know? Yeah. No, it he, is. He is somebody who really just gets to decide I think that we've really worked this out to the best of our ability, and this is what I want to go with. And I think I think that's uh, that makes a great director who can acknowledge, I am going to listen to you. I am going to be a team player. We're going to do the best we can to make the best film possible. And because I've been doing this for a while, I know when is the right time to say, let's stop here. Man. He's on the list, too. Yes, he is. Okay. I think we're good. Yeah, I think so. Oh, God, no, we're not. The music. Uh, Alexandre Desplat. Alexandre Desplat. Uh, I just need just a a shout-out to some of his, um, a couple of his other films that just really stuck out uh, to me. Uh, and I did not, it, this sort of all came into focus right at once. Uh, you know, he, he actually did, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox that notwithstanding he did the, uh, Harry Potter, uh, last two Harry Potter movies, which were fantastic. He did the King's speech, uh, ghost Rider, which was a terrific and, and really small thriller that was great up until the last seven seconds. 
and then it was horrible. Oh, I loved that part. Oh, I was. That's ma- what that's I what made ma- it. I loved it. Oh no, that totally. I I actually I would I I, I that's on my list of movies I need to recut for my own collection just to make me happy. <laughs> uh, he uh, he is a guy that has just really. Um, come out of nowhere with like 30 terrific films to his name in the last uh, 13 years. And uh, uh, he's worth noticing. Um, the first film I have in my collection that he did was 2007's Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, uh, which is actually a terrific, uh, terrific score. Um, so I, I have, um, well, you know, I collect film scores. Mm-hmm. So I have, I have a ridiculous number of his uh, film scores, starting with uh, 2003's Girl with a Pearl Earring. Um, although I don't think I actually noticed him until I saw Hostage in 2005, that right. Bruce Willis movie. Right. And um, and I enjoyed that film, um, but the music really stood out. I'm like, wow, that was really a fantastically interesting score. And since then, I've always been paying attention to him, and I, you know, I think he's he's done just some amazing stuff. He's been nominated several times, and um, uh, yeah, he's just he's he's great. I love he, him. Incredibly prolific. Uh, if you just, I mean, I'm we're naming off a handful of films from his English language films, but he's he you know you easily more than double that when you yeah. look at the uh, his European. Uh, his French films. He's he's right. fantastic. So and, he, uh, and he's been nominated already for four Academy Awards. I mean, he he does he does really great stuff. Gets around. Uh, looks like Nicolas Cage. It's weird. <laughs> and it's funny because when you said um, Ghost Rider, you thought I, I was talking I was, about Ghost Rider. Well, I I knew you were talking about the Ghost Writer, but it just instantly put Nicolas Cage in my head. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> That you said that, so yeah, uh, yeah, great, okay. great, uh, great film and great. great composer. And you know, it's interesting. It's the only time um, that uh, Fincher has worked with Desplat, and uh, I, I hope they work together again. I, the music really brought a lot to this film because it, he didn't make it a love story. It wasn't just about the, you know, the love connection between. Benjamin and Daisy, but it also was about the melancholy of of uh, opportunities and missed opportunities and life and death. And there's a lot going on with the music. It's just it's it's just a beautiful score to listen to. Um, absolutely, it, it's a little bit sad that you know just in in the research, it's hard to find you, you know in contrast to the conversation about Trent Reznor and uh, and David Fincher and the the later two movies, it's hard to find um, sort of more commentary on how the music came together in these earlier films. And so it's, uh, you're right, it's sort of unfortunate uh, that we don't have a little bit more insight into the behind the scenes on just the music and how he crafted it for this movie, because it is, I mean, it's epic. You know, he um, actually on the, uh, the great thing about David. You're going to show off your commentary thing again? (laughs) <laughs> not the commentary but the um the behind the scenes documentaries yeah david fincher um i don't know if it's because he was trained kind of in the george lucas side of things but he is very open about yeah i mean the guy, the behind the scenes stuff are longer than the movies yeah the the behind the scenes for benjamin button is almost 3 hours it's like 10 <laughs> minutes longer than the movie it's it's crazy um, but 
um, there is a bit on there with um, Alexandra Desplat talking about composing the music, and I wish that I had had a chance to rewatch that so I could uh, give some more insight into that. But I know he was talking about you know, everything kind of being in reverse and how he would take themes and then he would kind of turn them around and, and play them backwards, kind of the forwards, backwards stream of the story and everything. And there was a lot of really interesting things about that in the film with this score. Well, aren't you a big shot? <laughs> All right, I think we got to wrap this up. Yes, we should wrap I, it up. You know, get a load of this. I have to actually be a little bit uh, formal. Are you ready? I am ready. You can now hear our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, your fancy new Kindle Fire if you're a Kindle person, BlackBerry if you, you know, still have that, or or Palm Phone. On demand, on the go, don't have Stitcher? You can download it for free at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. It, it's you know I we we put all the Rash Pixel shows in Stitcher uh, where we're going. The first three are in there, the rest of them are on the way along with the archive shows uh, with uh, uh, acoustic conversations and Beer Thirty Live. And so if you know anybody who's listening to this show who you know happens to be a Stitcher user, uh, Stitcher's great, and you can get you get your podcasts and your news and talk and. Uh, you get it in your car if you have a Ford or a GM. You can get it in your car. It's a it's a great uh, system, and it just keeps growing uh, with great content and a great app. So uh, check out uh, Stitcher Smart Radio, uh, and just search for either movies we like or um, Rash Pixel, and you can find the shows there. Uh, and so I guess uh, then the other formalities, rashpixel.com slash MWL, movies we like, MWL. Yep. You can find the website for the show. And uh, uh, where do they follow you, Andy? They can do you want, do you want people to follow me. you on the Twitter? <laughs> they can at, um, what is it, at the movie monkey. The monkey. movie monkey. <laughs> Uh, and I'm at Pete Wright. And, you know, I also have been I've been pretty busy on Facebook lately, uh, which is just Facebook.com slash Pete Wright or Google Plus. We're all on Google Plus. Uh, same thing. Search for Pete Wright. And so uh, or Rash Pixel or Andy Nelson. Are you just Andy Nelson? On you what? Even, on Google Plus and Facebook? I don't know how you get a name like that on. Your... Oh, I don't. I don't. On Google Plus, I don't know. You're right. That's I funny. don't. I'm I feel completely. um technologically um, ignorant when I'm talking to you about these things. Huh. You'll have to show me. I can do that. I can help you out. I'm going to do that. You're going to be my cause celebre for social uh, media. Wonderful. That's what we're going to do. It'll be a project. Sounds like fun. <laughs> and that was the end, I, wasn't it? I sort of felt like we should break into song just then. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. 
The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>